0: Hi, my name is Andre Menezes. Uh, I beat the often path by uh, developing and scaling delicious plant-based chicken that delivers everything you love about chicken without the birds.
1: Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Well, gang, today I'm gonna geek out because I've got a record holder on the show. Andre Menezes broke a record for plant-based meat companies when his company, Tyndall, raised $100 million in Series A funding. Tyndall makes plant-based chicken alternatives that are sold around the world and they're championed by world-class chefs and fast food chains alike. But more importantly, Andre's personal journey took him from working directly in the meat industry for an extended period of time to realizing the many problems with that gigantic industry and to the realization that plant-based meat alternatives are in fact the future of quote-unquote meat. It doesn't get more exciting and inspiring than this for me personally, so I apologize in advance for nerding out. Piers Andre Menezes, CEO and founder of Next Gen Foods and Tyndall. It is an absolute honor and a pleasure to have you here because you have achieved some absolutely remarkable things. Before we jump into that, though, I have to say, what is it with your lawyers and using the word chicken? Is that cool nowadays? Can we say that? <laughs> uh
0: that's a great uh, a great question, and uh, indeed we get a lot of questions like why why do we even call it chicken right and so on but uh the reason why we do that and how we see it it's on purpose we are trying to make the people understand and believe and challenge the paradigm that what you love about chicken as food, it's not the fact that it comes from birds. What you love about chicken as an ingredient is the texture, the taste and everything you can deal with. And if you think about it, all of us meat lovers who uh, love chicken as an experience, we don't really like the way it's produced, but we shut our eyes and we don't wanna see it. We love that ingredient. So by using the word chicken, we're basically celebrating those uh, aspects of the ingredient and being very clear though, that we do that without the birds uh basically separating that chain and that's that's how we do it uh and there is a reason the reason is is that that, that's the reason why we do that that assimilation
1: well it brings up a fascinating philosophical concept which we'll cover in just a moment but first have you seen the original matrix the 1999 matrix movie yes absolutely so one of my favorite scenes in there is that they, they couldn't figure out what chicken the robots couldn't figure out what chicken tasted like which is why it tastes like everything that's one of my favorite little lines in there because the, the the machines couldn't figure out what chicken was supposed to taste like. And I think both that and a combination of what you just said illustrate perhaps the future of food and meat, quote unquote, which I think I personally believe in. This is going to get a lot of flack in general, but I personally believe that your idea is the future and that your idea is right. I think that these terms like chicken, beef, meat in general... They're going to take on different meanings because at the end of the day, it's not that you killed an animal that is what people love. It is the taste of something. It is the perceived health benefits of something. Because if I'm a meat eater and I eat chicken, I do it because I want protein and I want to build muscle for cheap. I want to feed my family. I do it because it tastes good and I like the texture. All of those things that you described, that's what we actually love. I doubt that there's anybody other than a truly sick freak on this planet who actually enjoys (laughs) the fact that it comes from killing an animal. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm giving humanity the benefit of the doubt here, but that's what I think. Do you agree with that belief? Absolutely, Roz. And that's uh,
0: to me was a bit of my journey. I was uh, I spent over seven years in the meat industry, everything from production, exports, imports, distribution, and uh, despite being a meat lover um, and doing meat business, uh, I realized that every time I was in a, you know visiting a slaughterhouse, which I had to do obviously plenty, right? Um, I felt like I didn't crave meat, the meat that I love. I was not craving it for the next few days, right? Uh, never became vegetarian on that occasion on visiting the plant, but uh, to me, we started just being a point like something's wrong. When I visit a cookie factory, a pizza factory, (laughs) I crave that cookie. I want to take it off the line. When I go to a slaughterhouse, it doesn't matter how much I love meat. I just feel like I don't want to eat it. That smell, that everything that comes with it, you don't want it. And to me, this is when I realize how we separate everything I just described, the nutritional, the benefits, the taste and the texture from the way it's produced. And then the question comes, is there a better way? Right. Um, I'm a car guy. So a similar story. You want to move from A to B, right? Uh, It doesn't mean it needs to be on a horse if you have a better option. Right. We forget the fact that uh, until like I'm here in Chicago, as I told you, uh, until 1800, late 1800s, the streets were full of manure from horses pulling carriages around. And people would not give up horses, obviously, because that was what transportation was about motorcycles and cars came and evolved and took this off that's the same thing we uh, believe it's happening right now for food
1: yeah I, i completely agree and you brought up another interesting point i used to watch this show called how it's made i used to love that as a kid where they show you factories and how bowling balls are made but sometimes how food is made and there was also a show called unwrapped with mark summers that did the same thing i used to love watching those things cooking shows the kind of chefs that now feature your product I have a food network, and I watched an episode where they make these, I think it was Hostess, the brand, those little fruit pies. It's just a little circle, and they flip it over and f- make a fruit pie. They're very cheap. When I was growing up, they were probably 30 cents in the grocery store. Very, very cheap. And as a kid, I watched this, and I had a dollar, maybe two dollars, and I was so inspired by how appetizing... That fruit pie look that I got on my bike and I rode to the grocery store about a mile away and I bought some of those fruit pies and I came home and I opened one up only to discover that they were terrible. It was awful. (laughs) But but the point is this, that seeing how it was made was appetizing to me. It made me want that thing. And a slaughterhouse, obviously, the food, anything in the food industry, sometimes there's videos floating around, this is how hot dogs are made, here's the inside of a McDonald's factory, here's where they just spray all of this meat with antibiotics and all of these things, which is itself another concern. When you watch that, you don't want to go out and buy a hot dog. You don't want to go buy those products. And You bring up a very interesting point that that separation is something that most human beings who weren't in your, who aren't in your position of having to be at a slaughterhouse, they separate those two things. They put a huge wall in between those two and they say food and enjoyment is over here. Barbecue is over here. Living my best life is over here. I don't want to think about how it's made. I don't want to dedicate a moment of thought to where it comes from because deep down they know that to do that would be to acknowledge something that's so painful that it might make them change their views over here. That's the way I see it.
0: And you're know, absolutely right. And it's interesting because if you look at everything, the way we communicate and the way we position and you know, the way we serve the product, the product performance, it's never about pushing you as a consumer to a guilty trip. That's not that's not what we want. It does not work. Food is enjoyment. It's emotional. Yeah. It's social. It's so intimate. And then times is the best moment of your day. You stop to have a great meal with someone you love. And when you're traveling, those are part of the traveling memories. Uh, and that's the bar that we need to perform as a sector, um, you know, without the animals. Yes, we've been using animals for thousands of years, but it's time to move on, uh, I guess, with, with something better. I mean, I don't know if you know. The whaling industry, hunting whales and using primarily the oil to light the streets, and you know, in the city, it was the yeah. fifth largest industry in the US in the late 1800s. No one is moaning the death of the whaling, in whaling industry. Uh, you know, it's the streets are well lit, electricity, amazing. That's great, right? Uh, th- th- that's time to move on on the on the on the food side as well.
1: Yeah, and it's going to take us some time to wrap our head around it, but it's easy to imagine that future generations will eat again, chicken, beef, all of these things, and it just won't be the same thing. They won't know the difference because they're going to places like Veggie Grill where your products are now (laughs) sold, so super great. Um, But I agree, because it's such an emotional thing for people, it's like religion. It's internalized. People. It's very deep, and anybody who has ever tried to convince anybody ever – to be vegan or vegetarian has a, a an impossible time of it. It's almost impossible to do because people associate these moments with the best moments of their life. Barbecuing with my family is the most enjoyable thing for me in the summer. I've had a rough day. I want a good meal. These are really, really powerful moments of joy in our day, in our year. Thanksgiving, a ritual, Christmas, a ritual. These are beautiful moments. And when you tell somebody we shouldn't do this anymore, the message that they receive in my experience is I'm going to remove joy from your life. I'm going to make your life miserable and I'm going to take away the very things that make you human. That's why I think what you have done is so profound because A, you're focusing on pulling people towards something instead of pushing them away from it, which I totally agree with. But it's also profound because you have built a very large business. You have hit all of the metrics of a successful startup or new venture doing something that is also good. And I feel that a lot of people separate that too. It's, I just want to make the most money I possibly can. Who cares how I make it? And you said, no, we can do both. We can build a successful company around something that is also better. That's why I'm just blown away by what you've done. You've proven it. That's
0: a great point. And uh, that, that's the second portion of that story, right? One story was that ingredient, questioning how an ingredient is produced and what we really like about meat versus getting all of these from plants. That's one side of the story. The other story, as I was running a meat distribution company after seven years in the meat industry, and I'm an engineer as a background, so I was I was shocked, and I worked with investment as well. When I combined that engineering mindset, looking at how much resources we need to push into a system, the business uh, financial investment angles, saying, like, I you know how this, the p adds up and what are the trends, and looking at all oh, the meat industry, how the resources are utilized, like, so inefe- inherently inefficiency given the conversion of food anymore, right? Uh, and so many steps you have to take transport and, you know, you have loss of animals and deaths and all that on the way to me, the question was like, uh, as a business, that doesn't make sense. So there is this false dilemma between, as you said, like, you know, you either do something sustainable or you do something profitable. Um, and that may be caused by real, you know, short term pain points, because if you're starting something new, that's more sustainable, a new way of doing it, the scale is not there yet. It's likely that's not going to be profitable, obviously. Um, But fundamentally, what we're doing is using much less resources than the meat industry using animal would. So in the long term, if you put it side by side, scale by scale, we are making something that can be potentially cheaper, more profitable, better and bigger. Uh, That's as simple as that. So to me, sustainability is not about just doing something nice, more expensive. It's about utilizing less resources. As long as resources are not for free, and usually they're not. Uh, that also tends to be uh, economically more feasible.
1: That's that's a great point. And I have heard from a criticism from people who love meat, who are meat eaters. It's floating around the Internet that it's not sustainable somehow. If everybody in the world didn't eat meat, that that would be a problem. Do you agree with that premise or is that something that's been totally debunked at this point?
0: I, 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 frankly, uh, I mean, I've seen many angles coming from that, right? And one of them is basically because you are basically effectively taking out all the farmers doing meat and so many jobs. And, and this is one of the strongest points that people would attack. Uh, but again, I would just go back to the whaling industry or, you know, people who are building transport buses being pulled by horses. Uh, no one is really moaning the death of that industry people move on you know you you get better you do something better and i don't think that, that angle is an angle that personally worries me but i think more importantly is instead of being trapped into a binary uh like you know the meat industry will die or is it, it will not it will prevail to me it's all about um in in the end for the foreseeable future uh, it's it's all about balance and growing you know finding a balance that makes sense if you ask me in a hundred years time I'm pretty confident that it's gonna make no sense to get meat from animals. It's just gonna be the most, you know, archaic thing ever that no one wants to do. That's a hundred years. But to get there, it's not a battle of yes or no. It's not a zero or hundred percent. To me, it's like, you don't need to have meat three times a day. It doesn't matter. Yes, you're trying to get protein, but come on, three times a day is just too much. Like, you know, past generations, we didn't, right? So it's about reducing to a level that makes sense. And that's all, I guess, for now, right? And then gradually evolving products, technologies, distribution, uh, awareness, all of those things evolving and moving towards that that goal. That's how I see it. A bit more pragmatic, uh, although uh, the reality is that we need a very quick shift for sustainability mm-hmm. reasons.
1: Yeah. And I do think that that has hurt the movement in the past in general, this militant concept of all or nothing, if you have a leather belt, none of your viewpoints over here matter. And there are many people in this world who still operate that way. And there are many vegan communities who operate that way. And I I think while I philosophically understand them, it is to their detriment in terms of spreading the broader message. Because what you said is exactly what I believe. If somebody who's eating meat three times a day can reduce it to once or twice a week, we have made massive gains as a society massive gains. So I don't believe that somebody, oh, you can never, ever, ever do this again. And again, like I learned, I was a, a, I was a hardcore vegan for a couple years and now I'm, I'm not anymore. I eat a lot of vegan meals, but sometimes I will eat fish. Sometimes I will eat eggs and cheese, not very often, but I did full on total vegan for a couple years. And I had this awakening myself. I thought, oh, when people realize the truth, They're going to be so excited to jump on board. And then I quickly learned that that was not the case. I'll tell my friends and I'll tell my family. They're going to be so excited to do that. Nobody cared at all. And then I learned, okay, that doesn't work. So I stopped trying. Like so many people, I just stopped telling people about it. And then if somebody would ask, I would explain. But that was where we ended up. But I have noticed that through that behavioral change over the years, people around me would start saying things to me like, I eat vegetarian meals sometimes, or sometimes I eat vegan dinners. And I was thinking, that's it. That's exactly the change. If if they can go to Veggie Grill just one day and have a Tyndall chicken sandwich instead of the one next door, that's progress.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what you just described, just this reducing that is technically small amount, right? Just bringing meat to a place in which meat is not a staple and it's basically a treat or whatever that's gonna take be more effective for um you know co2 emissions and greenhouse gas effects than taking all the cars off the roads that's how big it is transportation is very small when compared to food system and energy right so that's how big it is even a partial small change and and that's what i think uh you know by having a um a line of thinking in which you are opposing sides and say, as you said, if you letter, have a letter belt, don't talk to me because you're not like, this does not, this is not inclusive. That's exclusive. Right. And you're not going to get someone who's going to transition out so quickly for after decades of learning that meat is great and loving everything about meat and having leather everywhere wrapped as a sign of good quality. Right. So it's about basically step-by-step step, growing and pulling and not, not excluding, but including, and that's what we're trying to do so much. It's basically it's which it is also genuine to who we are. Uh, we wouldn't be genuine to ourselves if we were trying to force people mm-hmm. to go vegan, as even most of the team that we have is not actually vegan. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a very good distinction. One of the most compelling parts of your story, you and your co-founder Timo Recker, right? Yeah. Am I am I correct in thinking that he was a third generation? meat family or, or more? He's a multi-generational meat producing family. What's Timo's story? Because that's such a compelling arc for both of you. Yeah,
0: it's it's funny because, yes, he's a third generation schnitzel manufacturer <laughs> in Germany. Uh, right. And uh, He it was a very similar like it's funny how Timo and I we are about the same age we like were born in different places our paths only crossed very recently but like so many things in common including that so the background with meat and the business and what happened to him is that his father you know was running his father was a second generation was running the schnitzel manufacturing company in Germany and then uh, he was you know brought in to help uh turn around the business they went into some financial uh, difficulties back in 2008 2010 and then he went in and said look I love all of that I love the schnitzel and, but the same thing when he went to the farms, to the to the factory farms and slaughterhouses are like I don't like the way this is made I don't want to be part of that this is not the future this is archaic how can I make it Again, same, the protein, the content, the fiber, everything without the and then without the animals. And then he started studying, and that's how he created his first venture, which was called like Meat. Um, that became a brand that's now sold uh, primarily in Germany, very successful, but he exited and sold it to the Live Kindly Collective back in 2020. Uh, that's his background, which in so many aspects is so similar to mine, but I was a few years um, behind. I was in the meat industry all the way until twenty. Nineteen, and he was uh, already in the plant-based since 2012. real pioneer there.
1: Okay, and and you you also, you didn't go straight from the meat industry to Tyndall. You did some other stops along the way, and I think I saw you worked on Impossible Foods as well. What's the story there?
0: So as part of that meat industry, um, that's when I started asking myself, when I put the things together, right? I was like, this is not a sustainable business in the long run. Um, This is not a sustainable way of producing food in the long run, but people still crave meat. And I started looking around the world. I traveled. I was still in the meat industry, so I was doing meat distribution, the largest meat distribution company in Singapore. Um, And then I started traveling around the world to try every single product you can imagine. And as a meat lover, they would have to meet my bar. Um, So uh, while I was still at the meat industry, I started looking at plant-based as the future of that business and the future of the planet. And then I decided to bring some of the products into Singapore, the ones that actually made my bar, right? Uh, That's the context in which I was um, running and leading that distribution. One of the distributors bringing Impossible into Singapore, uh, which was a very eye-opening experience to me. And that's how I got connected to Timo. I was bringing his products as well to Singapore uh, and got connected to so many other founders like you know Just Eggs and Miyoko and so many interesting companies out there.
1: And was Impossible the first one that met the bar that you had? Was that the first one, the aha moment for you?
0: It was. It was definitely... um, I had tried many things until then and uh, basically declined um, because I was offered as a distributor to bring them in, right? And I have declined so many products back then until um, that moment when I tried. I was like, okay, that can actually meet the bar uh, that I was looking for as a meat lover uh, back then. And then that that was the first time. But then I started looking around and seeing, you know, I started learning about even oat milk back then and, you know, trying more things and and, and learning more about the sector.
1: Yeah. So when you thought about creating your own business, was it more, I see, a business opportunity here or was it more this other thing is wrong or was it both of those forces combining? How did you make the personal decision to go all in on this?
0: It was a combination and definitely not an easy uh, choice. I was in a very comfortable and very uh, safe position and, you know, everything going well, you know, super well in the career, growing very well, 29 years old, running a business there and then, you know, very successful on that front and, and I had like literally, it was just growing my career around the globe and there was no push um, from any angle to do any move. So that was a that made it harder as a bar, right? But I decided to that I was too driven and too young to to not try uh, to do to create an impact uh, to do something that is obviously harder. Um, and when I say harder, it's not so much about only creating the business. I have already started business before and still running. My father actually runs the business that I helped starting back then, um, but. The thing to me, what's harder, is like this is a this is a new category, right? If you're selling meat, you are part of a 1.4 trillion dollar industry, and if you're selling plant based, you are amazing. one percent of that, relying on consumers trying for the first time, and that's a massive, massive uplift, and and also um, a mission, right? So, but to me, that was what was driving me. I mean, someone has to do it. I'm better positioned than anyone else around me to do it. I have you know, some level of financial comfort. I have a career and I have everything. I have no, not a lot of financial commitments and, you know, kids and anything that I would be dying to have a job and, and just be safe. And I said, it's my calling. I got to go and do it. That was then the combination. And I said, that makes business sense. And there's probably a better way to use all of my learnings from the industry to do a global leading company in this space and, and, and help driving the category ahead. That was how it started. Uh, obviously, same deal for Timo, same thing.
1: That's so cool. And we've talked a lot about bars that you can reach or moments that are pivotal. Tastes, quality, this is an important bar. But I think the next important bar for the industry is price. And as somebody who hasn't bought any meat or chicken or beef for over 10 years... Sometimes I am shocked to see how cheap it actually is, because here in the United States, it's, oh, you can get 10, I don't know, I'm being a bit fussy, 10 pounds of chicken for a $1.66. You get a giant thing of chicken for under $2. And the same thing is an individually plastic wrapped, tiny single serving of whatever beyond meat or impossible. It's just so much more expensive. And that is an unfortunate... Fortunate bar that has not yet been met. Because for many people who are just struggling to get by, who don't have a lot of extra income or wealth, they say, Yeah, I might be interested in this, but this other thing is just so much cheaper and I can feed my family so much better with it. That we haven't yet reached this equilibrium where the efficiency and the cheapness of products on the input side of the artificial meat matches the cheapness of purchasing the products for actual meat is that only because of subsidies what is the reason for that and how do you see the price coming down in future years of the new types of meat
0: now that's a great point and uh there are a few components to that um so fundamentally let's starting from the meat industry right the price that was part of what made me realize as a business guy like looking at this it doesn't make sense in the future was that I had a chicken, uh, my frozen chicken back then on the supermarket shelf, one kilogram, about two pounds, uh, being sold at $2.50, Singapore dollars, so about two US dollars back then, um, on the supermarket shelf. Right beside it, in the same freezer, and that chicken was coming from Brazil after growing for like 38 days and being fed and transported clean and everything you can imagine, a lot of work transported around the world, $2.50 on a supermarket shelf. side by side there was a nice block from Malaysia a nice pack from Malaysia which is like neighboring to Singapore not expensive to produce things there um, using water from the river uh, filter obviously um, you know but just freezing that water and bringing it to the same supermarket like maybe 15 miles from source 20 miles I don't know um same price.
1: <laughs> right. And I
0: was like, how does that make sense? and And I started digging it's like it doesn't, right? So one side of this equation is the fact that meat industry will necessarily have uh, increasing price over time. And that will come from natural things we're seeing. will come from water shortage and water being effectively charged. Today, it's simply not. You can take millions of pounds of water. Outside of the U.S. or Brazil, which are exporters in the shape of uh, produce or chickens, and there's no problem about it. No one is saying stop exporting water. But if you think about it, a chicken is 70% water. You are exporting 70% water out of the soil. And and we were discussing. You were in LA, right? I think California right now. If I tell you that you are exporting so much water, you would say not at all. We cannot do that, right? So one component will be the value, proper value of the of the chain that we're using, and that's going to drive the meat up, meat prices up. Necessarily, there will be scarcity, obviously, as population consumption grows. This is one side of the story. The other side is then, how can plant-based be cheaper than it is today? And it's still, obviously, as you said, more expensive, uh, despite having already reduced so much. And here is where scale plays a very strong part fundamentally, it's more efficient to produce it. But, um, you know, we, the company I used to work with was 8 million birds a day. You can dilute every single cost you can imagine in 8 million birds a day. There's no problem. Whereas if you are doing a plant-based that is a tiny, tiny amount, everything is not diluted, so the cost is higher due to the scale not being optimized. Um, simply a matter of volume coming up, that's going to come down. There's a bit of a no pun intended chicken and egg here. Well, you know, volume drive Mm -hmm. prices, prices drive volumes. But um, I'm very confident that this is going to happen as well as the meat prices are going to come up as they are. It's already happening, right? If you look at the Netherlands, meat became more expensive. Chicken became or meat became more expensive than than plant-based for the first time right now. This big, big topic in the last two weeks.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I lived in the Netherlands for eight years, so I have a strong connection with it. Uh, good for them. <laughs> I know they have other issues related to farming and chemicals right now. There's big topics with the farmers and in Netherlands in the general, but in general. Uh, but yeah, I think we all have had those moments. Anybody who's looked into this, it's just a reframing of things that we all know. Like we export produce in California and you say, well, you're actually exporting water. You say, oh, no, no, it's protein. Well, it contains a lot of water. It's the truth. It's just a different way of looking at it. And for me, 10 years ago, I was in a grocery store and I saw a can of corn for, let's say, a dollar. And then I saw a beef hamburger for a dollar. And I thought to myself, how many thousands of cans of corn has that cow eaten in its life? Millions of pieces of corn. To generate this burger, how does that make any sense? And obviously there are government subsidies, there's economies of scale involved, but it's not an accurate reflection of what actually goes in. And a lot of these costs are obscured, probably deliberately, so that the consumer is not aware of the true cost of these things. They don't want you to think about the, the water, the antibiotics, the pollution, the runoff, all of these other side issues that go along with it. Because that makes it inconvenient. So on the one hand, it is a positive thing. I don't want to totally knock it because subsidizing food is a positive thing for people making food affordable. That is a good thing. I'm not knocking that as a general principle. But the point is that people on the, the end of the consumer chain, they have just no concept of what actually goes into making the products. They just see the sticker price and they buy it or they don't buy it. So
0: you mentioned a great point here. Um, and again, like as a car guy, I'm, I watch very closely now the next transition that's happening into electrified BEVs or plug-in hybrids or whatever, but electrified mobility. Right. And, um, there is, if you're not really deep into the sector, you tend to believe that, you know, it was the fact that Tesla accelerates so quickly that made the EV industry grow and Tesla is the only player out there because they're so good in communication, um, But the reality is that if you look at the EV uh, market, um, it was, I mean, first before internal combustion engine, actually there was an electric vehicle, right? The car, you know, first was steam and then electric and then internal combustion. That's back in the late 1800s. And then it went all the way, um, internal combustion engine taking over, as we all know. And electric vehicle prototypes and even models being sold were always there. But like that, you know, growth and growth stagnates, you know, that a lot of steps in between until you started having money go into the, 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 the space, companies like Tesla, which basically sh- shaken up everything and opened the, the eyes of everyone else that actually the products can be excited. And then you have all the industries doing that excitement. And then suddenly you have governments as well. Effectively handling our checks to the in benefits, be because you can now drive in, in London and you can you know charge for free in Lisbon and you can charge you know p- find a parking space because your car is electric. So there's so many benefits that were given to EVs that has actually driven the whole sector to get out of that very marginal small line to exponential growth that's starting to happen now. Uh, and we lose all of that side. What's happening with plant based meat right now is that we're still on that. Edge of uh, that growth, but all the subsidies are only going to the to the incumbents, to the mid farm, um, mm. and, and and dairy in general. That's something that comparing has not happened yet uh, in plant base, and hopefully it will happen.
1: Yeah, you can imagine, you know, a hundred years ago, somebody sitting there saying, "I'll never buy a car because there are no gas stations anywhere." If I go to a hotel they have a hostler where I can you know put my horse. There's tons of horse feeding places but there's nobody that has gasoline. Forget the electric uh, forget the gasoline based car, it's the same thing. Once people can charge there may not be so many charging stations now, but there will be. There will be soon and people are scared of road trips. I'm afraid to go too far in my Tesla because what if I get stranded? That's a fear and it's you know it's a legitimate fear but that will pass obviously all of these things yeah, will pass it's just the way it's not that true. it goes yeah I mean, we're we wired see it.
0: To, yeah we're wired as human beings to see change with everything we lose and not with everything we win right and as if yeah. and everything that's already a paradigm we don't see out of it so as to your point gas stations were not, you know, naturally happening in the environment, right? Right. Someone had just, to do it. It the wild gas stations of Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, that's 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 it. And, you know, we have to talk a little bit about the origin of the name because I think it's very funny. And I, I will admit the first time that I saw the name Tyndall I did think Tinder before I knew anything about your company. I thought Tinder, that's funny. And then I realized that it was deliberate. So the combination of the name, it's a combo between was it 19th century physicist John Tyndall and Tinder legitimately so how did you wind up on this name
0: No the t- Tinder was not uh, I mean we Oh that's a joke. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But uh Tinder when we created the name was basically inspired on John Tyndall as you said the physicist who figured out that CO2 has heat absorption properties and that's the base of the same for greenhouse gas effect and you know because we are in this space this is so relevant and we couldn't call it like you know Tindo T U I N D A L L. It's just too uh, you know not not in line with what we wanted as a small modern short name. So that's how it became Tindo. Is it obviously we knew that two associations could uh, be made for people who didn't know us and be Kindle, be Tinder, but we were not uh, unhappy with that. We're fine. Um And then we uh, we joke around it and say like, yeah, you can, you know, you can, you can associate if you want to swipe right to it. And that's delicious. That's great. But the origin is because of John though the physicist behind the greenhouse gas effect understanding.
1: A name who should be a household name, but is not yet, but should be. So, uh, we'll try yes. to help him. yeah, exactly. You're on your way uh. So we've talked about a lot of positive things. We've gone forward. Were there moments when you began this? Was it a straight upward journey? And the next part, we'll get to some of the stats, which are truly mind-blowing. But you started this, you decided to take on a a co-founder to do this journey. Were there difficult moments where it seemed like this wasn't going to work? Were there struggles? Or was it pretty much instant positive feedback?
0: Uh, Never easy. Uh, Every, I mean... Frankly, I can write down in, in time, every three months, we had a major uh, evolution as a company and uh, since the beginning. And those evolutions was ba- were basically happening when we were able to unlock some of those major issues we were finding. Right. And they could be anything around. Um, I mean, when we started, what was What were we going to do? We didn't know it was going to be chicken or what. We knew it was going to be plant-based, but plant-based what, right? And uh, every single step you can imagine. We started in April 2020, lockdown, as you recall, and we wanted to create a global player in the new space. And yeah, congratulations. You cannot leave Singapore. um, You cannot travel anywhere because the borders are all shut. How do you do that? So from that moment to, you know, all the markets are collapsing back then, right? If you recall. Later, there was this massive uptick, but they, they collapsed before and we're like, Do we stop or do we go ahead? So every moment there was like immense challenges that um, we internally, we celebrate them all. Uh, We're very clear about that, celebrating mistakes and celebrating challenges. But obviously, if you're looking from the outside we're basically looking at output and the output has been amazing. So there were, to your point, many, many challenges uh, from, you know, covid related challenges to how do we scale up how do we do line trials without being able to travel we were in singapore the productions in the netherlands we couldn't travel how do we do line trials everything on video conference it's not easy right and uh, we're able to do that how do we hire remotes how do we raise funds without seeing anyone in person like how do we get people to taste the product sitting in the middle of like you know we're not a continent if we cannot travel and Shipping food, frozen food around—it's not something straightforward, right? And if you're carrying in a handbag, it's easy to bring some samples, but which is how people would do before. But for our case, we couldn't. We had basically to do an like, almost an export process for every single sampling we're doing. I mean, the the, the list is just crazy, uh, and we're very proud of all the challenges we went through, um, and so far we've been able to. It's our ability to go through them and navigate and and adjust and move on that I think defines uh, who we are.
1: Was there a moment where you thought, I made a huge mistake?
0: Uh, in terms of like specific, uh, never yeah, as a company. You, never. Made a a huge, a, like, you said
1: you were comfortable, you had a great job, you had a great career. Was uh, there a moment after you took yeah. the leap where you thought I made a huge mistake? Never. What am I doing?
0: Th- that's a never, uh, that's definitely a never. Uh, there was no moment that I that I questioned myself whether this was the right thing to do. Um, that was never. But if you think about, obviously, as a company, and you know, as we were doing A or B and taking routes A or B, then yes, we had mistakes and, and learnings and move on. And right? that was, that was obviously yeah, very, very normal. It's, it is normal. Yeah.
1: So, to that point, that's a great answer. I love that. That's your honest answer here. Uh, how does it feel now, being on the other side? How does it feel having shifted your priorities versus how it felt? 10 years ago when you were in the middle of this other thing do you have a different passion for your career for your life has your personal life changed do you feel happier
0: i was always like i I never had a linear career so like i mean i started my first company was 12 years old i was always there like you know and then i started another one um that it's owned by my father with two of his brothers um, and you know i brought it up to level. so that passion was always there uh, and when even when i into, went into uh, bigger companies that entrepreneurial drive was always there and i was very lucky that i could always flourish even beside those companies i could i had entrepreneurial mandates so that was something that to me was always there I was never i didn't have a linear progression by any means like i started from investment fund and then went to like supply chain and then i was I have grown in different very quickly within that letter, and then I was expat to Singapore, a joint venture, took over like the management of the business there. Nothing of that was normal, so I'm used to no normal linear path. I never believed that was uh, you know linear. Like I just I just can't. I'm not I'm not disciplined well enough to to follow a rule or or a road that someone tells me. Uh, I'm not. I like to develop my own path and, 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 you know, always reevaluate everything. So on that angle, it didn't feel like, never felt like, you know, oh my God, it's a massive difference, um, you know, personally. But uh, it feels on a mission side, it feels so much better. Like it just feels that everything I'm doing, all the effort I'm doing is worth it. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for a greater cause. And I'm trying to help, you know, live in a better planet uh for the next generations uh whereas just trying to get myself a a, a fat salary uh you know that i could get on a meat industry easily right
1: yeah and do you think that that's a progression that a lot of smart people must make because as we grow through life we must make a sort of progression we have different values when we're 10 when we're 12 when we're 20 when we're 30 when we're 40. do you think that it's a logical progression because when we're a kid, we have no concerns. We just want to have fun. We're largely shielded by our parents. We're taking care of, but then we come out into this world. We have to earn money. We do it by any means necessary. We just try to get a job or we try to do something that's going to pay us the most. Do you think that for intelligent people, the next logical progression is, okay, let's put money aside and focus on what is something bigger that we want to achieve versus just enriching ourselves?
0: I think the world would be a much better place if everyone had achieved the minimum level of uh, the basic needs being addressed in a way that there's no, you know, you're not, you're not, you're you're not, I mean, you still have access to education and healthcare and you can have a decent life. Because to me, what happens to, and if you look at this, it's so clear and you look at successful, financially successful people, what happens is usually that you start from that eager and you have to pay your bills. And then you wanted something better. And then you want a better house, a better car, a better something. And then you realize there will be a moment in which usually your expense just disconnects from your income, right? And then suddenly that maybe that was your driver in the beginning. You thought that that was what you should go after. But if you keep going after that, you will see that it's just empty because what happens your life doesn't really change that much anymore. And basically the numbers just stack up in the bank account so what i feel that transition happens some people say is when you cross that eighty thousand dollars kind of annual income on average obviously right. changes by country but i do feel that if everyone had all those basic needs met and you see that to your point smart people and very successful financial people usually they go through that and whatever number the number is they start taking care of bigger uh missions right so be how do I impact more people? How do I leave a legacy? How do I leave a better planet than it was when I when I started? And then you you become uh, effectively less self centric or egocentric, um, and you start looking at a broader impact. And and I to me that that's a big change that I have felt very clearly when I started having my corporate career going up very quickly, and I could keep my my expenses down always like relatively frugal on my on my expenses like consciously um, and. And then that to me is what I would hope that the world would just be a better place because then you're worried about bigger things. And very likely that when you do bigger things, you actually get more money. So it's interesting. yeah
1: (laughs) And that right there, you just summed up the entire premise of the show. (laughs) Right there. That's it. And to that point, boy, have you done some impressive things on the other side of this transition. Let's talk a little bit about some of the numbers, some of the accolades. So uh i think you had a 100 million dollar series a round which was a record for plant-based meat which is just incomprehensible how did you describe how would you describe that funding for this business how did that go how did you achieve that record here
0: now, i i think it's obviously a combination of uh some portions of it is a merit, uh some portions is a you know very mission aligned uh investment partners and a portion of it is also the, the, the market environment. But uh, the, on the market environment, obviously, you know, the, the investors and the flow of capital into economy uh, is obviously very helpful. And by no means, I think, anyone should dis- disregard that, right? Uh, whoever has raised any money over the last three years uh, have, has had a, probably an easier time, be the valuation, be the value, be the how easy or harder it, it was not or um, to raise the the macro factor was actually great all the way that's one investors that are like long term aligned that they really see that this is important and has to be driven like you know Temasek is such a voice in this space and being backing it up and you know a, a long term investment that really see that as a, as a game-changing opportunity. And then on the micro level, on our side, basically we're very clear about uh, when really we started the business not being the first time we're doing business. Uh, Timo and I, we started not with our pet's passion, like it's not that we had this technology and we want to sell it, which is the typical startup way, and let's start small and then try to grow. We started from a perspective like we want to build a global leading player as fast as possible, learning from all of our past and industry Uh, meat and tech industry or whatever, how can we make a global leading company at the fastest possible way? And hopefully, if this industry of plant-based grows over that 1.4 trillion industry a year, that is the meat industry, we want to be one of the relevant players on the other side, right? And be one accelerating that transition, but also becoming a relevant player. When we combine all of that with all the early signs of success we have been having since the early days of the company, um, product performance brand performance ability to open a markets, supply chain working all of the backup um uh, the, the investors just helped uh, us and back this up that that's how that that has happened
1: yeah it's it's so so powerful and it's it's good for everybody to hear that big investors are aligned with these values that they do see the value in these types of solutions and we talked earlier about getting people to reduce or because there's a philosophical and a moral component to this stuff, but there's also just a business component. And I think if you think about capitalism versus communism, right, in theory and communism, we'll all help each other out. But people say, oh, it's more likely that they go after their own best interest. And that's why capitalism kind of won out in the West. We tend to care about our own well-being and our own family and our own best interests first, even though we should care about you and your children and all of those other things. We don't as a society. And I love, love, love the idea that there is a really smart business person out there who maybe doesn't even philosophically care, who's not altruistic or doesn't morally care, but that they do these kinds of things that are good for the planet from a business perspective. Now, the ideal person would be somebody who thinks about philosophy and morals and ethics and reaches these conclusions from that perspective. But if there's somebody else who's really smart and good at business who does it because they say, I can raise $100 million doing this because that's where the world is headed, even though I don't care, I'll take it. I'll take that because if more people do that, world is going to change in a positive way. So I think it's just very important that stories like yours reach more people so that they're aware again it's not a choice between making money and doing good and to your earlier point in fact you might make the most money when you do the most good because other smart influential people see that and they're aligned with your mission as well how powerful is that
0: exactly i mean i'm an optimist and you know i just i think there are ways to make money not doing good for sure but uh, classically speaking but I do tend to believe that if you're doing good to so a big amount of you know big number of people we will you know money will come because people will want to compensate you in the form of buying our products or services or whatever um, in a way that that's going to come back as money um, think about music industry is a classic one Artists doing great music people feel great about you know the music and they're going to be buying and streaming and whatever not uh, those guys are making tons of money. Is that bad? I think, you know, killing some of those false um, dilemmas or dichotomies between, oh, you've got to do good or I do money. Uh, like, it, I think, basically, I think Rachel Conrad, she sits in our board and she says something very powerful. I don't know exactly, you know, I'm going to kind of quote her here and then the idea, which is like, how can you explore capitalism to do good? To accelerate transition. So what yeah. is there? In, because you need money. Let's be honest. You need resources. You need money. You need talents. You need salaries to pay the people. People have to pay their bills. You need communicate. We're dealing with a $1.4 trillion paradigm that's been around for thousands of years. It's naive to think that just being nice and and, and fun would get us there uh, and drive impact. So how do we use capitalism to drive that? Any return we feed capitalism back with? with the returns on the company, right? Uh, I think that's a fair game. Uh, Not everyone needs to agree with that, but that's our take.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm with you there. Not everybody does need to agree with it, but it is also, it's my take as well. And it's just a pragmatic thing. It's a practical thing because there's only so much disruption that anybody can do. You can't tear down all of the systems themselves overnight. It's impossible. You can't build a new system. You can't build a new society overnight. But what you can do is find a different and unique way of working within these existing structures and systems that achieves something bigger. It's more surreptitious in that way. And I think, as I've said before on this show, I think it's our best general bet. It's our best hope at this moment in time where we know we need action. We know we need massive action. And we know we need smart, hardworking, and talented people to be thinking about these problems because if if people like you aren't solving these things, nobody's going to do it. So so as we wrap up the end of this, I just want to express my gratitude again, not only for you doing this, for you committing to this and for making that shift, which, again, I think is just so powerful that you went from the meat industry and so did your co-founder to this and that you're thriving on the other side. You feel great about the mission that you're doing. It's fantastic. But I'm also deeply humbled and honored that you chose to sit with me and share your story I cannot wait to hear what happens to you and for you in the next five years when your when when Tyndall is a, a household brand that everybody knows. I think it's just a matter of time.
0: Thank you so much, Ross. I mean, it's so inspiring to to see what it, you've been doing and achieving. So, thank you so much to you know for giving me the space to share a bit of our story here. I think it's part of a part of our mission, right? To communicate and you know communicate why we're doing it. What's the reason behind? Who are we behind this? And, you know, debunk some myths. Uh, I think that's important as well. Again, not everyone has to have a similar view, but at least understand where we're coming from usually helps. So appreciate this space and opportunity to do that. Thank you so much for that.
1: Well, it's my absolute pleasure. And as we wind down the last couple minutes, I would like to leave the floor to you. So is there anything you'd like to promote or share? Where can people learn more about your mission, your company? There's a couple different websites, but... Promote whatever you want to promote right now.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for the space. But uh, I think uh, just following our content and news, uh, be through our channels, the Instagram, at Tindo Foods, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Tindo Foods, our own uh, team as well. We're always informing about everything that's going on. Uh, In our website, Tindo.com, you can find even restaurants that are serving uh, near you around the world right now in nine countries. And you can even, like, if you are in a place that you want to give it a try, it's also available in Gold Belly. So if you Google, if you search for <laughs> Tindle on gold Belly, uh, you can actually give it a try if you want. Um, I, I, I guarantee you won't regret. It's really delicious.
1: Sounds good. And again, that's T-I-N-D-L-E dot com, Tindle dot com. Many famous chefs, well-known chefs support this now. Many restaurants, veggie grill in the United States available at fine dining restaurants now around the world. Very exciting time. So, again, I thank you, Andre. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over.